All right, so I was told that I could read the scripture this morning, uh, so that's what we're going to be doing. If you want to turn to Luke 13, uh, 1 through 9, I'll be reading uh, that section. Thank you very much, whoever made this a short section. In Awana, sometimes the younger kids, we have shorter verses, so I think they made a give, gave me a, a short section just to be nice, so thank you, whoever did that. Uh, Luke 13, 1 through 9. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on the Tower of Siloam that felled and killed him, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I found none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on it manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. These are the words of God. Thank you very much. We'll bring up Seth. All right. Good morning, everybody. Glad you're here. Hearing that passage again, I've been studying it all week, but hearing it again, like, man, there's a lot of death and perishing and manure and <laughs> kind of seems like a downer passage. It's not, I promise you. How do you ensure good outcomes in your life? Are you a planner? Are you a list maker? Maybe you do something as simple as obey traffic signs in order to not get into an accident. I hope you do. Maybe you budget well. My wife and I probably a little too strongly, but go through every single month and do a line item budget of every single item to the penny, and I can tell you exactly how much is or isn't in our savings account at any given time. We may just call those things common sense, or maybe wisdom, and, and that is true to some extent, but at the core, they are all an attempt to achieve a desirable, a particular outcome. A lot of people turn to religion, or at least some form of spirituality, to do that as well. I, there's probably people in here who became Christian because they heard that Jesus will make their life better. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. In some sense, whatever gets you in the door, then we'll fix your theology later, but just get in here. <laughs> One very popular kind of spiritual way of doing that in our culture right now is invoking karma. Now, it's a little different than actual Hindu historical karma from centuries past. We've, we've kind of twisted it for our own Western individualistic mindset. But the classic example that we see all the time is that pay-it-forward mentality where you're at the coffee shop and you pay for the coffee for the person behind you, and then they're supposed to pay for the coffee for the person behind them. And I read a story that uh, in December of 2020, you know, in the middle of all the lockdowns and COVID, people were using drive throughs like crazy. And there was a Dairy Queen in Minnesota where they had a pay-it-forward that ended up lasting almost, I think, over 900 people. It went two and a half days. Somebody started it, and they're like, yeah, you know, normally it'll go 15 or 20 people. 
And, and people started hearing that this pay it forward thing was happening and you know, the Dairy Queen was tweeting because every single restaurant has to have a Twitter account now. And, and people were getting in line to be a part of this pay it forward thing. And then like the last person that showed up before they closed, they left a $10 bill so that it would start up again the next morning. That's kind of cool. You know, it's something different, something exciting, something kind of fun just to be a part of in the middle of COVID and lockdowns and isolation and all of that. But in reality, what, what is that? I mean, if you pay for the coffee of the person behind you, the person was already in line expecting to pay money. I've seen this happen 15, 20, 30 people in a row while the homeless guy on the corner still doesn't have any coffee. So maybe you're brightening someone's day. I don't mean to downplay acts of kindness. Maybe you make the world a slightly better place. But you're also attempting to stack the deck. You're attempting to get the universe on your side, put a good favor in your tally box of good versus bad. I've done a good thing, universe, and now you owe me something. Which, by the way, is also Mormonism and legalistic Christianity, but that's beside the point. And though these acts of kindness may be described as human decency, they are really an attempt to gain control over one's life and its outcomes. Here's the reality of karma as we see it in pop culture today. This is a quote from a modern Hindu religious writer. This thing blows my mind. It is up to all of us to do our best to create value for ourselves and our society. We each are the center of the universe. If we don't care, the universe doesn't care. Besides the fact that that makes no sense, if everyone is the center of the universe, no one is the center of the universe. But the idea of this karmic balancing of the scales, good versus bad, see if I can outweigh with deeds, it's just this thinly veiled spirituality that when you pull back the curtain, really reveals this religion of self, where I am God, and I have control, and the outcome I want to see, I can influence. And as much as we like to think we have control of our lives, and honestly, I mean, for the most part, us Western individualistic Americans have quite a bit of freedom, quite a bit of control. You have the option to decide where you want to go eat, where you want to fill up your gas, what kind of car you want to buy, what kind of house you want to buy. By and large, we have a lot of control. But inevitably, things happen in the world that break down that system and leave us grasping for some semblance of understanding and comfort. Today is the 21st anniversary of the September 11th attacks on the Twin Towers, where over 2,500 souls were lost. And a lot of people started asking questions. A lot of people started going to church because of that. The system I had doesn't make sense anymore. The system I had doesn't account for that many innocent people dying in one fell swoop. And we see that very thing happening in this passage that we're in this morning as well. Ben read it for us, so I'm not going to read it again. But the first five verses of Luke, chapter 13, both the crowd and Jesus bring up two such paradigm-breaking events. We don't have any other details about these events historically, um, but presumably Pilate had killed some Galileans and mixed their blood with the blood of animal sacrifices on the altar, which is an abhorrent thing to do. It desecrates the altar. It desecrates the humans who died. It's a, a terrible, terrible fate. But it was also not that uncommon 
for Jews to be experiencing that kind of torture, that kind of dishonor, um, that lack of care for their religion, for their God. And likewise, the second story of the tower in Siloam falling and killing 18 people, we don't really have any more historical details, but Jerusalem is a really earthquake-prone area, and so it's not uncommon for things to hit and buildings to fall down, especially when they're made of clay, you know, back in the day. But the crowds were bringing up the first event to try to make a point. And Jesus responds with the second event to show that their point doesn't actually matter. And both of these things are hinting at this one big flawed idea that I just mentioned, that I have some sense of control over my life. The thought of random, unfair, and unexpected death scares everyone to one degree or another. It makes us uncomfortable, like something is terribly broken and flawed with the world. Spoiler alert, it is. And so if we can come up with some kind of system to explain tragedy, as well as empower ourselves to have some kind of control over stacking the odds of fate in our favor, then we can kind of gain some sort of sense of comfort, some ability to cope with these things that are so difficult in life. And so we see the effects of death and brokenness, and we look for a cause that makes sense. And this isn't just a modern concept. I mean, the book of Job, likely the oldest story, if not the oldest book in the Bible, has a whole bunch of examples of people thinking this way and the friends trying to comfort Job. One such example is Job 4, verses 7 and 8. This is one of his friends. Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or who were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. So what is Job's friend saying there? You know, bad things happen to bad people. So what have you been hiding, Job? Because the outcomes over here don't match what you say you do, O righteous one. So clearly, something in the equation is off. And we know what actually happened to you. So what you're doing and what you're saying you're doing don't add up. We call this retribution theology. If actions don't equal, if actions equal outcomes and your outcomes are bad, something is up with your actions. If you tell me you do good and I see bad things happen, you must be lying. Why? Because I don't want to live in a world where ultimately doing good or bad doesn't matter. Where is the meaning in life? What, what sense is there in doing anything if I don't have any control over what I do and how it affects what happens to me or what I gain or what I lose? There's another example of this kind of thinking in John chapter 9 uh, from Jesus' disciples. John 9, 1 through 3. This is Jesus. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the work of God might be displayed in him. This was a really common question. In fact, this was the way that the 
Pharisees started to try to figure out the cause of some of these problems. Go about, okay, when was the last time you sinned? What, what did you eat for breakfast? Uh, did you keep Sabbath? How far did you walk? Or was it your parents? Was there something that happened that we can explain why there is this brokenness in your life? So the disciples aren't off here. They're asking probably one of the most matter-of-fact, obvious questions that people would ask in that day and age when they encounter suffering, brokenness, and death. But Jesus, in saying it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God may be displayed in him, he's saying, guys, that's not how this works. You're asking the wrong question. You're searching for a cause. I, Jesus, a godly perspective is looking at outcomes, at opportunities. The disciples are trying to make sense of the brokenness and unfairness in the world. If I can understand the cause, I can tell myself that the universe is okay. I can convince myself that there's equity, that there's meaning, that there's fairness, that there's stability in life. Something that I can hang my hat on and go, okay, I know what I'm doing today and I know why I'm doing it. But Jesus is trying to open their eyes to a greater eternal reality far above this temporal life and what happens to us today or tomorrow. This man was more temporarily blind, afflicted for a short period of time, something we would consider, I mean, devastating. Blind from birth, you don't even know what things look like. You don't even know what color is. You have no idea. There's no concept for even anyone to even explain to you how something appears. And yet it's this temporary affliction that Jesus looks on and goes, no, he's in that for a small period of time, that the eternal God may be glorified for all time, and that people may be saved into eternity by being able to see Jesus work powerful miracles in his life. The problem is we're looking for an explanation for suffering and death other than sin. If you're wondering, there are three kinds of ways to die. Real happy topic this morning. One, at the hands of evil, like Pilate killing the Galileans, or terrorists flying planes into buildings. Two, of natural disasters or freak accidents, being at the wrong place in the wrong time. Or three, of natural causes, like ripe old age. And the first two don't normally sit well with us, as they should, I think. Because something is off, and we start looking for an explanation of why is there evil. If there is a good God, why is there evil? I, I can't even remember how many times I've heard that question asked. One of the biggest barriers to Christianity is, if God is good, why is there evil? That's a valid question. How do we understand this world and make sense of it? If you say God is good, and these are the outcomes I'm seeing, God must not be good. But if for some reason someone dies of natural causes or of, of old age, we just kind of say they lived a good life. And we take solace in watching all the fun things they did with their life in the slideshow at the funeral. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I've been to two different kinds of funerals, and maybe many of you have as well. The first kind, the most common kind, thankfully, by the grace of God. People who got to live life to the full here. Uh, we, in the last couple of years, Bob Tucker, Mary Jo Flenner, many, many others who have gone home to be with the Lord. And there's, there's a sadness there that they are no longer here with us, but there's also this hope, of course, that they went to be with the Lord. And this kind of like 
completion. Yeah, they got to, look at all the things they got to do. They got to experience all the things. They got to have kids. They got to watch them grow old. They got to experience these different elements of life on earth. And then there's the second kind of funeral that some of you have probably been to. My best friend in college um, had twin boys, and one of them passed away in the womb, and that traumatic event of him passing away in the womb caused his brother to be without blood for a certain period of time, and he never developed a brain, more than just a stem. And so when he was born, they thought he was going to live for a few hours. He ended up living for nine months, which was incredible to see. Um, But going to that funeral, it just felt different. Most of the funerals that we attend, you know, there are some tears, there, there is some happiness, there's a mix of things, and when people come up and they start to share, I've seen this all the time, and they start to get kind of choked up and they start apologizing, you know, sorry, let me, let me gather myself. I, I just, every time I want to say, don't apologize. This is the most natural thing you could be doing, is crying in this moment. Nobody apologized for crying at the funeral of these two children, because it hits different. You know something's wrong. If you remember the story of Lazarus' tomb, when Jesus visits, what does he do? He weeps. This is the creator and sustainer of the universe. He has the power to raise the dead, and in fact, he knows that he's going to go to the tomb and raise Lazarus from the dead, and yet he weeps. And I don't think he was weeping because Lazarus is dead. I think he's weeping because the destruction of his beautiful creation that sin has caused is messing with him. And he just, he knows, I need this to end. I need this to go away. I need to conquer this. And he knows that he's going to. But it's still just confronting the reality that sin breaks God's creation. Death is a symptom of sin. And the outcome is separation from God. All sin leads to death eventually. So it does no good to figure out, okay, well, what kind of sin did did they do? They must have done a greater sin because that tower fell on them, and that's a terrible tragedy. That's not normal. So there there must be something in their life that they didn't tell anybody about because I can't live with the idea of that happening to me. Or... What sin were they doing? I'm going to make sure to not do that one because clearly that outcome is over there. But my sins are fine because I'm still alive. So, you know, we're good to go. The problem is there's no way to keep your nose clean. Death is coming for everyone who sins, which is everyone. I'm sure you've all heard by now that Queen Elizabeth II passed away this week. And there's this overall sense of wonder in the media. I mean, she reigned for 70 years, 214 days, the longest reigning monarch in British history. And yet, as Christians, in some sense, we should be saying, man, she died so young, only 96. She had so much life left to live. I mean, that sounds a little bit silly. But in her being created in the image of God, like every other human being, They were designed to live for eternity. Death was not a part of the design. And I think we've all become too willing to accept it. You've heard it said before, you know, no no child, no parent should ever have to bury their child. 
and I absolutely 100% believe that. But I think if we truly understood the enemy that death is, we would say with equal conviction that no child should ever have to bury their parent either. No grandchild should have to bury their grandparent. The entire system is broken. And yet we have become content with attempting to control when or how we die, as if that makes the problem any better. When Jesus Christ offers the conquering, the destruction, the defeat of death. If you'll notice in the story, Jesus' response to both of the examples of what we would consider maybe freak accidents or unfortunate death or, or death due to evil, they're, ex- they're word for word exactly the same. He says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. There's a lot of really important things in Jewish literature about repetition. The fact that he says the exact same thing both times means that he's making a greater point than what they are trying to make there with their two little examples. He's saying that that gaining any sense of control over your life or power in your life by trying to figure out how not to sin like that guy who got crushed by a tower or scoring brownie points with the universe somehow by trying to do more good than bad, it's all pointless because everyone's end is ultimately the same. The problem isn't when or how you die. It's the fact that you will die, period. And the only way to avoid perishing that, the only antidote for death, Jesus says, is to repent, to turn from your ways and admit that you don't have control over your life and submit to the one who does. Then to drive the point home, this passage is really simple. Jesus is making just one single point in the entire passage. So he drives it home with this parable, starting in verse 6. Took away my bookmark. Don't do that, Seth. There it is. Verse 6. And Jesus told this parable, A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. So in this parable, specifically Jesus is calling Israel the fig tree, which is a very common um, connection, whether a vine or a fig tree or some sort of fruit-bearing plant. But it also refers to you guys, disciples of Jesus, those who have chosen to give their lives to the Lord. And as somebody who's actively being discipled, they're putting manure around it, it's being watered, it's planted in a good vineyard with a caretaker that is giving it all that it needs to grow. They're a part of a home group. They attend church every week. They have access to a Bible. They have every chance to succeed. But they fail to have anything to show for it. And this parable is explaining what repentance should look like. It's not just saying you're sorry. It's meaning it and backing that up with action, with produce. But I would argue that even that is a bit of an insufficient explanation. For Jesus, repentance is a habit. It's a lifestyle. Anyone can act repentant for a season. But does it become a part of your character? Is there evidence of lasting change? Does it bear fruit 
in your life. The whole point of this passage is repent, bear fruit. Those are my groundbreaking points. That's it. So back in a few chapters in Luke, chapter 3, John the Baptist tells the crowd this. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid fruit to the trees, insert fig trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The thing I really want to point out is verse 8 there. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. What in the world does that mean? John is accusing the crowds of being there to get baptized, basically to just get fire insurance. They're just there to punch their ticket. This, there's this new thing. There's this revelation. Okay, I want to make sure that my name is on the guest list. And then I'm going to go keep doing whatever it is I want to do. They make this argument that because they are the blood heritage of Abraham, they're already in. I'm already planted in the vineyard. I'm good. doesn't matter what I produce because I'm in. John is saying and Jesus is saying that's not how this works. The vineyard of God's kingdom only has room for trees that bear fruit. Jesus says, why should it take up the ground? Why should it take up resources if it's not going to produce for the kingdom? Repentance is meaningless if there's no fruit to show for it. I've heard, and maybe you've heard as well, repentance described as a, a turning from, you know, a change in trajectory. And while I think that's true, I think it's incomplete. Repentance is not merely turning from bad, but in that turning becomes transformation. And over time, you become less like the person who would turn that way. And the thoughts and the ideas of being that kind of person are farther and farther from your mind as you keep walking in that road of repentance closer and closer to Christ. And of course, this is by the grace of God. This is by the work of the Holy Spirit in you. This is not you striving and straining and struggling and committing pen penance. Penance, that's the word saying, no, I'm not going to ask for forgiveness. I'm going to feel the weight of my sin for a little bit. I used to love doing that. No idea why. Got some sort of sick satisfaction from, no, I'm not going to apologize to God. I'm going to make sure he really knows I'm really sorry this time. I'm really not going to do it again, Lord, until tomorrow. Good, I'm not alone. I was getting worried. The way I like to think about this is like a, a flywheel, if you will. Uh, I don't know if any cars even use flywheels anymore, but it used to be that it would capture momentum. And when you stopped, the energy got transferred to this wheel, and this wheel would keep spinning. And then when you re-engaged, that momentum would get transferred back into the system and would start to move you forward. That's what repentance, in my mind, is. It's this building momentum in your favor if you want to stack the deck in your favor, the momentum towards God, repent and get a lifestyle of repentance. Now, this doesn't mean that you're groveling on your knees every single day. I would hope that over time this repentance would become easier. Practice makes perfect, right? 
You don't have to show God how sorry you are. You just get to celebrate the fact that Jesus died for you and that that's covered. Sure, at the beginning, early on in your life, it may be, Lord, what have I done? I am so sorry. But over time, you start to get to the point that Greg likes to, we talked about this in staff meeting recently, where you sit and you go, you know what? Why did I do that? That's not who I am. That's not Jesus. Lord, I'm, I'm so sorry. I, thank you so much for your grace. Done. You've repented. It doesn't have to be this show. It doesn't have to be this emotional roller coaster. It doesn't have to be tears and blood and sweat and pages and pages and pages of journal writing. It could just be a simple, yeah, Lord, that was dumb. I'm sorry. I love you. Thank you. That's a rhythm of repentance. And over time, I hope that rhythm starts getting faster. You get quicker to repent. You spend less time wallowing and more time celebrating that God is good, that Jesus has grace new every single day. But there's another layer to this parable that we miss if we're not incredibly familiar with our Old Testament. For any devout Jew, this parable would have immediately brought to mind the book of Isaiah, chapter 5. Isaiah writes this prophetic parable of his own. We're going to go there and read the whole thing. Isaiah chapter 5, starting in verse 1. This is a really interesting poem because it starts out almost like a Song of Solomon kind of poem, and it takes this weird turn. It's really interesting. I think it should be on the screen, yeah. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes, or you can translate sour grapes, ones that are not good for consuming or or making into wine. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. It shall be devoured. I will break down its wall. It shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed. The briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. It's really interesting in Hebrew, the word justice and bloodshed are, sound almost identical, and the words righteousness and outcry also sound almost identical. So there's this poetic play, I looked for one thing, and you gave me something completely different, even though they sound so similar. So God is poetically walking through his vineyard, the people of Israel, looking for fruit. And what are the two fruits that he's looking for in verse 7? Justice and righteousness. When I saw these two words, my mind was blown, and I'm going to take you there because it's so, so cool, all the connections here. These two words right here, righteousness and justice, are central to the entire Old Testament. Let me show you. Buckle down. We're going to seminary for a moment. Get your page flipping fingers ready. Genesis 15, 1 through 5. 
God makes a covenant with the man Abram. And this is really the beginning of God redeeming a people for himself to begin redeeming the whole world. Genesis 15, chapter 1. I added a lot of this later because I realized this connection like on Wednesday, so I apologize. (laughs) After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Verse 6. And he believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. So the first of the two words there, righteousness, means trusting God when it makes absolutely no sense. And God does not give Abram an alien righteousness. It's a word that's commonly used for this certain view of thinking in theological studies. He did not bestow upon Abram something that he didn't currently possess. He didn't go, Abram, because you did that, I am going to decide to make you righteous. The word there that they use, he counted it to him, means he observed. He looked upon and saw righteousness. And this is really important because what God is saying is that what Abraham is doing is righteousness. Righteousness is attainable by humans who trust and love the Lord. It's not this alien thing that's impossible and then he bestows it upon you. Now, I would argue it's only attainable by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's be careful about that. But it isn't this alien thing that you have to try to achieve. And if you flip a few chapters over to Genesis 18, Genesis 18, verse 19, God says this, For I have chosen him, that's Abram, that he may command his children and his household after to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Same two words as in Isaiah 5. So that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. So what are the two things that God wants Abraham to do? Righteousness and justice. Later on in Mount Sinai with Moses and the Ten Commandments, they get a more expanded, more detailed version of that. But the Ten Commandments are not an addition to righteousness and justice. All of those different laws and commands are still summed up in righteousness and justice. The covenant that God makes with Abraham is the baseline covenant through all the different covenants, through David, through Moses, through uh, Jesus, the new covenant is, still has the baseline of Abrahamic righteousness. And it's simply these things. If you have your sermon notes in the um, worship folder, I put in four Hebrew words there. And these four words are central to the entire narrative of the Old Testament flowing into Jesus, fulfilling all of those things. The first one is chesed. That's loyalty to Yahweh. So these are the four things that, that 
make up Abrahamic righteousness. These are the four things that God is looking for in people who follow him. The second one, aman, where we get our word amen, means trusting in his word. You can also say faith. The third, and there's two words there, and these, tzedakah and mishpat, righteousness and justice. We've spent literally the last year in seminary going over these words and how they're absolutely everywhere in Scripture. And so when I saw these two words, you know, pop up, I got super excited. Like, I've been studying this forever. It's everywhere in Scripture. The harder you look, the more you see. Tzedakah and Mishpat. Tzedakah and Mishpat. I want you to obey my commands. And his commands are to do righteousness, to trust God, to be loyal to God, to have no other gods. What's the first commandment? Have no other gods before me. That's, that's Hesed. And then the other nine basically are trusting his word that not doing those things and doing the things he says instead are better. And then the final thing, which it doesn't have a Hebrew word associated to it directly, is provision that God will provide. So we have loyalty to God, trusting his word, doing righteousness and justice, which is obedience to the Lord and all that he asks you to do, and looking to the poor and the marginalized and serving and loving them and stooping down to show them the love of God, such as, just as God has shown his love to you. And this thread is weaved all throughout the Old Testament, but watch how it even carries over in the New Testament as well. We'll turn to John 15. Very, very famous passage in John, and rightfully so. But I didn't see this connection until this last time reading through. John chapter 15, starting in verse 1. I am the true vine, this is Jesus, and my Father is the wine dresser, vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches." Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We've all heard this passage a lot of times, but like seriously, how, how do you abide in Jesus? That word sounds fantastic. It sounds lovely, super idealistic. What in the world does that mean for me on a Monday morning, trying to get my kids to school, trying to get some work done, trying to get dinner cooked, trying to get the dishes done? trying to go to bed at a decent hour so I can do the exact same thing the next day. What in the world does that look like in that context? Does it mean you sit quietly hours before anyone's awake in your word with an amazing cup of single-origin coffee, pages and pages of notes in your journal written in such a way that they look excellent on Instagram? Kind of sounds like a dream, but it's far from reality for most of us. And I don't think that's what it honestly means. That could be a, a part of it, sure. If you have that ability, go for it. Man, run with it. Do it for us, because we don't have time. I think the vast majority of us just don't have that kind of margin in our schedule to define abide that way. And I don't think that was John or Jesus' intention when he was giving that instruction. Remember, what was the fruit God was looking for in Isaiah 5? Righteousness. And justice, tzedakah and mishpat. 
Righteousness, loyalty to God, trusting his word and living rightly. And justice, defending the poor and the marginalized, dying for the lowly. I believe this is the exact same fruit that Jesus is talking about and looking for here in John 15. He says, if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. Now, I know that fruit can also reference Galatians 5 and 6 and the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit are all relational traits. Every single one of the things of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, every single one of those is impossible to do on your own. That's in relationship with others. As you are doing righteousness alongside of the believers and as you are doing justice to the marginalized alongside other believers. So I believe that abiding in Jesus simply means doing and being Abrahamic righteousness. Loyalty to Jesus alone. Trusting Jesus' word and his promises that he will follow through in bearing that fruit if you abide. Obeying his commands to love God and love neighbor. And believing that salvation comes from Jesus' finished work and not your own striving. If you look at every other religion in the world, every single one of them, you will see a laundry list of things to do to either become like God or to be in the right with God. These are the steps to becoming righteous, to achieving that alien righteousness that's way out there. And I think we look at this thick Bible and we can become tempted to fall into the same pattern of thinking that all the different people following other religions fall into. We turn this into an impossible to-do list. Even if we say, oh, there's grace. But eventually you have to nail it. Grace is not limited. You are all going to stumble and fall and trip and eventually cross that finish line bloodied and bruised saying, thank you, Jesus, he sustained me to the end. We even turn resting in God into a whole bunch of work. It's ridiculous. Make sure you pray this way for this number of minutes a day. Make sure you read your word for this number of minutes a day. Have a journal time where you write enough words. Absolutely, pray and read. Absolutely, that's how you get filled. That's, that's the roots. Being planted in the vineyard means participating in prayer, reading scripture, coming to church, fellowshipping with other believers, home group, all of that. That's being planted. That's being filled. That's having the manure piled on you. All of that nutrients being poured on you so that your soul may grow. I know it sounds gross, but it's real. Hey, look, my wife put a heart on my notes. At least I hope it was my wife. <laughs> Thanks, babe. But the Christian life is super simple. Stop overcomplicating it. Don't listen to anyone who does. Living by this book is incredibly straightforward. I did not say it was easy. Do not hear that. But it is simple. Repent and abide. Be the kind of person that is less likely to be the person you were. And as you keep progressing, you become less and less like that person and more and more like Jesus as you get into that rhythm of repenting and abiding. Remember, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. What incredible words of promise. Jesus is saying, Repent and abide when he says that. Come to me, 
Realize that I am your source. I am the one who has control of the outcomes of your life. And I will give you rest if you abide with me. If you are loyal to me, if you trust me, if you obey me, and if you believe that my work on the cross was good enough for your worst sin. I'm going to wrap up with just a few closing thoughts. Luke 5.32 says this. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I've heard a lot of different explanations for why Jesus came. Particularly in the maybe more charismatic, larger movements that he came to do powerful works. He came to do miracles. He came to show the glory of God. He came to make your life better. He did, not in the ways you're thinking, but he did. But his primary goal from his own mouth is to bring sinners to repentance. And that's a real easy job for him because every single one of you is a sinner, myself included. Which means, John 3.16, he came for everyone. Second thing that's interesting about this parable is that it just ends. It's just a cliffhanger. The vine dresser says, okay, let me put manure on the, on the tree for one more year and we'll see if it grows fruit. And if it does, awesome. If it doesn't, then you can cut it down. And then the story's just over and it just moves on to something completely different. I think that's Intentional. I think we as the reader are supposed to look at that story and realize that it's our story as well. And he's leaving you with the question, so will you bear fruit? Not by your striving, but by obeying to repent and abide. And the last thing, there is a way to control your outcomes to stack the deck in your favor. It isn't karma. It isn't tipping the scale with good deeds. It's repenting and abiding. Saying, Lord, forgive me, and Lord, thank you. Keep filling me up. Will you join me as we pray? Thank you, Lord, that there are threads woven throughout Scripture that are so tightly interconnected that there is no way not to see them. Thank you, Lord, for being the same God who called Abram, changed his name, changed his outcome. Thank you that you don't burden us with wearisome striving or a massive to-do list. I genuinely don't understand how other people in other religions don't crack and break and crumble under the weight of of the impossibility of stacking the scales in their favor. Thank you, Lord, that you say your burden is light. That if we come to you in repentance, you hear us. And we come to you longing to abide. And you say, finally, it's about time. Open your hands that I may pour out myself upon you. 
Lord, give us the clarity of mind to remember that all you long to see from us is righteousness and justice, to love you, to be loyal to you, to trust you above our own fears, above our own uncertainties, above our own desire to have some semblance of control. Lord, I pray for margin. I look at my calendar this week and I have no idea how I'm going to get it all done. And yet I know that being with you is the most important thing I can do this week. Give me eyes to see the margin. Give me discipline and intentionality to seize those moments and instead of reaching for the remote or reaching for the Facebook to reach for your word. Help me to balance that out. Help us all to balance that out, Lord. Help us clearly see that abiding you is the most important use of our time at any given moment. Give us hearts that are eager to repent because we know we're running back to a good, good Father. The next time we sin, we cannot wait to come back and say, Jesus, I'm sorry, I love you. Thank you for your grace and your mercy again. And Lord, by your spirit, keep walking us all further and down that path from who we were and closer to who you are. We love you and we thank you for your goodness. It's in your name we pray, amen. Will you stand with me as we close with a song?